Welcome to the Gonzo Zombie Survival Specials. Part 2. World War Z by Max Brooks. Following up on last week's show in which we discussed what zombies would be like should they exist and how to defend yourself against them and prepare for a world of the undead, as detailed in the Zombie Survival Guide, this week we are talking about Max Brooks' follow-up book, World War Z. Now for the uninitiated, nothing can prepare you for the jump in scope and scale between these two books. The Survival Guide is written as a factual manual, coldly disseminating the relevant information as it is applicable to each situation. To call it The Hobbit to World War Z's Lord of the Rings would be the only worthy comparison. As such, in the same way, we couldn't possibly cram all of Tolkien's epic saga into the confines of a one 90-minute podcast and still do it justice, we will instead attempt to give you listeners a flavour of the overall story, featuring irregular samples from the exceptionally good audiobook. My guests once again are Neil Teller from Gameburst. Hello. And Matt, Matt Harrier, Ramsey. Hello. When it comes to what to pick up and when, I cannot fault my own personal route. The books of the Survival Guide and then World War Z, followed by the audiobook of World War Z. And if you can find it and don't mind paying over the odds, the audiobook of the Survival Guide. This is because the World War Z audiobook is abridged. There are 42 interviewees in total within the book, and only half of them make it onto the audio. Thus... Audio followed by text would merely flesh out an already excellent established situation rather than bringing to life the key points of an overarching story you now know in totality. But, cost and time prohibiting, you can't really go wrong with the audiobook on its own anyway. The books are £4.95 and £5.24 on Amazon and the audiobooks are £24.44 for The Survival Guide, if you can find it, and £7.68 for World War Z. attacks. We can't really start talking about World War Z without briefly mentioning the final third of the survival guide, which are the recorded attacks. Delivered chronologically rather than in order of discovery, these attacks span 60 pages and 62,000 years. Starting in Central Africa at the dawn of modern man and recurring throughout the ages, always dealt with by decisive and brutal actions in a mostly remote community. Many of them interlink, allowing a keen-minded reader to trace the lineage of the Solanum virus through time and our entire history. They paint a vivid picture of a very real series of incidents that have been ignored or covered up over the years, leaving the world convinced that zombies are a creation of Hollywood rather than a naturally occurring phenomenon. 
It is this complacency that leads to the world falling to the undead sometime in the second decade of the 21st century. It's never made entirely clear when the outbreaks start in earnest, but the first doctor to encounter them in China had a video-capable phone. If it were to begin in 2012, then sometime around 2020, the journalist and narrator of this book will travel the world collecting verbal accounts of dozens of survivors and key players in mankind's downfall and eventual fight back. Usually for these Gonzo shows I write my own breakdowns, but the course of events that cover the years of World War Z are so complex and realistic that I cannot afford to inflect any of them with my own opinion. It therefore falls to Wikipedia to roughly detail the timeline. We can pause at key moments to discuss salient points. Through a series of oral interviews, Brooks, as an agent of the United Nations Post-War Commission, describes the history of World War Z. Although the true origin of the zombie pandemic is unknown, the story begins in China, after a zombie from a previous outbreak bites a young boy. The Chinese government attempt to contain the infection and concocts a crisis involving Taiwan to mask the true purpose of increased military activity. Infected refugees seeking a cure and the black market organ trade spread the infection to other countries. An outbreak in Cape Town, South Africa, finally brings the plague to global attention. Okay, this is something that was actually left out of the audiobook that you guys won't know about. There is an account in the book of a doctor who was witness in a, a hospital of a patient who had just had a, a new heart put in from a uh, organ donor but the organ donor had already started to turn so effectively he has a zombie heart put in his body and immediately the infected blood rushes into his stream and he he turns within minutes they effectively freeze the virus in the form of the organs and unwittingly ship it all over the world and that's how that's one of the ways it manages to get a foothold in society that is scary but that's actually happened not with zombie but with HIV so yeah. that's quite plausible the, the that's where is the inspiration on that the outbreak um, at the start of the book in China is very well done it's yeah. very creepy it's very I don't want to say it's mysterious but um, there's a mystery to it it, it builds and builds slowly from mm. what the hell's going on to the cover up and it takes its t- time and it's all this is the one thing you'll learn when you go through either the book or the audiobook it's all very real yeah. And you can, you can easily imagine these, the steps that are taken by governments and stuff that lead you to the situation. And it is incredible. Uh, the, the, the opening of the book, uh, well, the audio book is the, the outbreak in China because obviously that is the setup. There's sort of a suspicion on how the boy gets attacked and where it comes, but that's about it. There's nothing beyond that. And it, it slowly builds and it is a very, very interesting bit because, uh, uh, when Max Brooks' character is talking to the doctor that witnesses the outbreak, uh, um, one of the things the doctor says about the, these rural communities are that they are uneducated, and that is one of the problems that led to, led to the outbreak. Mm-hmm. As the infection spreads, only Israel initiates a nationwide quarantine program and closes its borders. Bethlehem. Palestine. With his rugged good looks and polished charm, Saladin Cater could be a movie star. He's friendly but never obsequious, self-assured but never arrogant. He is a professor of urban planning at Khalil Gibran University, and naturally, the love of all his female students. We sit under the statue of the university's namesake. Like everything else in one of the Middle East's most affluent cities, its polished bronze glitters in the sun. I was born and raised in Kuwait City, 
My family was one of the few lucky ones not to be expelled after 1991, after Arafat sided with Saddam against the world. We weren't rich, but neither were we struggling. I was comfortable, even sheltered, you might say, and uh, oh, did it show in my actions. I watched the Al Jazeera broadcast from behind the counter at the Starbucks where I worked every day after school. It was the afternoon rush hour and the place was packed. You should have heard the uproar, the jeers and catcalls. I'm sure our noise level matched those on the floor of the General Assembly. Of course, we thought it was a Zionist lie. Who didn't? When the Israeli ambassador announced to the UN General Assembly that his country was enacting a policy of voluntary quarantine, what was I supposed to think? Was I supposed to really believe his crazy story that African rabies was actually some new plague that transformed dead bodies into bloodthirsty cannibals? How can you possibly believe that kind of foolishness, especially when it comes from your most hated enemy? Here's what I thought. The Zionists have just been driven out of the occupied territories. They say they left voluntarily, just like Lebanon and most recently the Gaza Strip. But really, just like before, we knew we'd driven them out. They know that the next and final blow would destroy that illegal atrocity they call a country. And to prepare for that final blow, they're attempting to recruit both foreign Jews as cannon fodder and... I thought I was so clever for figuring this part out, kidnapping as many Palestinians as they could to act as human shields. I had all the answers. Well, who doesn't at 17? My father had just quit his job, cleared out our bank account, such as it was. Uh, our bags were packed, our e-tickets confirmed. The TV was blaring in the background, riot police storming the front entrance of a house. You couldn't see what they were shooting at inside. The official report blamed the violence on pro-Western extremists. My father and I were arguing as always. He tried to convince me of what he'd seen at the hospital, that by the time our leaders acknowledged the danger, it would be too late for any of us. I, of course, scoffed at his timid ignorance, at his willingness to abandon the struggle. What else could I expect from a man who'd spent his whole life scrubbing toilets in a country that treated our people only slightly better than its Filipino guest workers? He'd lost his perspective, his self-respect. The Zionists were offering the hollow promise of a better life, and he was jumping at it like a dog with scraps. My father tried, with all the patience he could muster, to make me see that he had no more love for Israel than the most militant Al-Aqsa martyr, but they seemed to be the only country actively preparing for the coming storm, certainly the only one that would so freely shelter and protect our family. I laughed in his face. Then I dropped the bomb. I told him that I'd already found a website for the children of Yasin and was waiting for an email from a recruiter supposedly operating right in Kuwait City. I told my father to go and be the Yahud's whore if he wanted, but the next time we'd meet was when I would be rescuing him from an internment camp. I was quite proud of those words. I thought they sounded very heroic. I glared in his face, stood from the table, and made my final pronouncement. Surely the vilest of beasts in Allah's sight are those who disbelieve. The dinner table suddenly became very silent. 
My mother looked down. My sisters looked at each other. All you could hear was the TV, the frantic words of the on-site reporter telling everyone to remain calm. My father was not a large man. By that time, I think uh, I was even bigger than him. He was also not an angry man. I don't think he ever raised his voice. I saw something in his eyes, something I didn't recognize. And then, suddenly, he was on me. A lightning whirlwind that threw me up against the wall, slapped me so hard my left ear rang. You will go! He shouted as he grabbed my shoulders and repeatedly slammed me against the cheap drywall. I am your father. You will obey me. His next slap sent my vision flashing white. You will leave with this family or you will not leave this room alive. More grabbing and shoving, shouting and slapping. I didn't understand where this man had come from, this lion who'd replaced my docile, frail excuse for a parent. A lion protecting his cubs. He knew that fear was the only weapon he had left to save my life, and if I didn't fear the threat of the plague, then damn it, I was going to fear him. Did it work? Some martyr I turned out to be. I think I cried all the way to Cairo. It's fascinating to see some of the actual extremely positive things that occur as a result of a shared threat, as well as the, the extremely negative things that happen when people start to attack each other. And I've got to say, massive, massive props to Max Brooks. He is fearless in his writing here. He doesn't shy away from anything or any culture. He, he looks at things that people are very ashamed of and would rather keep hush-hush and just says, no, this is actually what happens and this is actually what would happen. He, the guy has balls. Again, like I said, everything you will he read in the story or hear in the audio, uh, audiobook is very, very believable. Mm. Okay, so let's carry on with the breakdown. As the infection spreads, only Israel initiates a nationwide quarantine program and closes its borders. Pakistan and Iran destroy one another in a nuclear war after the former refuses to quell the numbers of refugees fleeing its heavily infested territories into Iran. Uh, that, that's, again, this goes to another interesting point of the book where um, you have two countries that are allies destroy each other in mm. a war. Um, uh, as it's, I mean, it, the way Wikipedia has broken this down, it is very simplistic. You are not going to get everything from this breakdown. You're not going to get everything from us. But in short, there's a there's a high amount of uh, refugees fleeing one country into another. Uh, a bridge is taken out to stop to stem the flow of refugees, and it literally is just an order of escalation to the point where they literally, because there's no systems in place to protect them, because obviously Pakistan and Iran are of friends but there's no system in place to deal with what happens with escalation because it's never thought that we will go to war you know pakistan and india there's safety checks involved there's yeah. phone calls there's, there's people whose job it is to prevent war there's lines of communication yeah there's there's simply lines of communication between enemies that it wasn't between these two friends mm. which in the long run is a downfall where they literally wipe each other off the map of a in an escalation of, of retaliation. The, the character at this point even says that he imagines it was probably some, some lazy colonel who just didn't want to, to bother with it, didn't pass on a message, and didn't pass on the next message, and he just escalated from there because they had no other way to, to get hold of anybody other than through that, that embassy uh, who were no use. Um, it was, it was just there was no way to stop it, despite that all it would take is a phone call from one leader to another. And 
you know, it, it's just one of those stupid things, and sadly history has told us that that's the kind of thing that does cause uh, military blunders of this nature, and then two entire nations are gone. Again, horribly believable, but... <laughs> and it's heartbreakingly abrupt as well. It just goes, yeah, like that. The United States does little to prepare as it is sapped of political will by several brushfire wars and lulled into a false sense of security by an ineffective and fraudulently marketed vaccine. This is a bit which was cut out of the uh, audiobook, but uh, if you imagine Jay Moore as this snake oil shyster pharmaceutical marketer who comes up with phalanx, which is effectively a placebo marketed to counteract certain viruses, but it never actually outright says that it'll cure the Solanum virus. And so now, years later, he's hiding in Antarctica and many, many, many people in America want him dead because he sold them a cure and they were panicking and frightened. It's, it's a fantastic commentary on irresponsible pharmaceutical companies, specifically who've got their claws into America. When the world recognizes the true scope of the problem, a period known as the Great Panic begins. I'm not sure when the transition happened. It was so subtle, I don't think anyone even noticed. But suddenly, you had a room full of military professionals, each one with decades of combat experience and more academic training than the average civilian brain surgeon, and all of us speaking openly and honestly about the possible threat of walking corpses. It was like a dam breaking. The taboo was shattered, and the truth just started flooding out. It was liberating. We outlined a fully comprehensive program, not only to eliminate the threat within the United States, but to roll back and contain it throughout the entire world. What happened? The White House loved phase one. It was cheap, fast, and if executed properly, 100% covert. Phase one involved the insertion of special forces units into infested areas. Their orders were to investigate, isolate, and eliminate. Eliminate? With extreme prejudice. Those were the Alpha teams? Yes, sir, and they were extremely successful. Even though their battle record is sealed for the next 140 years, I can say that it remains one of the most outstanding moments in the history of America's elite warriors. So what went wrong? Nothing with Phase 1. But the Alpha teams were only supposed to be a stopgap measure. Their mission was never to extinguish the threat, only delay it long enough to buy time for Phase 2. But Phase 2 was never completed. Never even begun. And herein lies the reason why the American military was caught so shamefully unprepared. Phase two required a massive national undertaking, the likes of which hadn't been seen since the darkest days of the Second World War. That kind of effort requires Herculean amounts of both national treasure and national support, both of which by that point were non-existent. The American people had just been through a very long and bloody conflict. They were tired. It had enough. Like the 1970s, the pendulum was swinging from a militant stance to a very resentful one. In totalitarian regimes, communism, fascism, religious fundamentalism, popular support is a given. You can start wars. You can prolong them. You can put anyone in uniform for any length of time without ever having to worry about the slightest political backlash. In a democracy, the polar opposite is true. Public support must be husbanded as a finite national resource. It must be spent wisely, sparingly, and with the greatest return on your investment. Americans are especially sensitive to war weariness, and nothing brings on a backlash like the perception of defeat. Now, I say perception because Americans are a very all-or-nothing society. 
We like the big win, the touchdown, the knockout in the first round. We like to know, and for everyone else to know, that our victory wasn't only uncontested, it was positively devastating. If not, well, look at where we were before the panic. We didn't lose the last brush fire conflict. Far from it. We actually accomplished a very difficult task with very few resources and under extremely unfavorable circumstances. We won, but the public didn't see it that way because it wasn't the blitzkrieg smackdown that our national spirit demanded. Too much time had gone by. Too much money had been spent. Too many lives had been lost or irrevocably damaged. We'd not only squandered all our public support, we were deeply in the red. Think about just the dollar value of phase two. Do you know the price tag of putting just one American citizen in uniform? And I don't just mean the time that he's actively in that uniform, the training, the equipment, the food, the housing, the transport, the medical care. I'm talking about the long-term dollar value that the country, the American taxpayer, has to shell out to that person for the rest of their natural life. This is a crushing financial burden. And in those days, we barely had enough funding to maintain what we had. It cuts to India and a man named A.J. Shah who was trying to escape uh, on by sea. And he goes to a boatyard. And it's one of the most terrifying uh, visions of, of what happens when people are trying desperately to get into the water. And zombies are on the beach and zombies are in the water. It's, it feels like the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, but with no gunshots. It's actually the reverse of Saving Private Ryan. Man, he doesn't just go—he doesn't go to a boatyard. He goes to a decommissioning yard. Yeah, so one where they destroy this, boats, effectively. This, so, so anything that floats, they are literally trying to get floating uh, to the point where people are being crushed. Uh, I can't—I'm not sure if this is right or not. I believe one of the boats that's on land falls and crushes people. I don't remember that one specifically. There are, the, but there are boats going back and forth, only taking white passengers on board, or only taking women, and it's it's allowing the vultures to suddenly proliferate in this yeah, awful this, moment. This awful moment is seized upon by, I suppose the best way of describing it is the scum, as, as the Alex scum. said there. You know, the, this boat's only taking fair-skinned people across, only taking women across, there's people who are literally taking every penny these people have to try and you know just to get ferried across and it's not safe because um as we established in the previous uh, podcast zombies don't breathe no so anything so that's in the water can reach up and grab you and drag you down it's just and deep enough for a zombie to be on the on the bottom but to be able to grab you yeah so it li- as we, as i just said it literally is saving private riding reverse they're not trying to storm the beach they're trying to get off the beach, the beach yeah and it just gives you this, um, just this scene, the way it's described, and the way it's worded, and the way it's told. Just you feel this overwhelming panic just to get out of the situation, mm. uh, of the vultures, of the scum just circling, and uh, and just uh, just being, quite frankly, the worst of humanity. But not just that. He does say for every one boat who was uh, full of racist murderers, there were ten boats of people trying desperately to get people on board, people who would bravely go back in their rowboats, you know, risking being swamped or dragged down by the undead just to get a few extra people onto the ships. It's it's that at that point that you start seeing that humanity does have some elements that will actually fight for each other as opposed to simply fight each other. Yeah, the, it, there's the elements as good as well as the bad. So, it, it, but uh, it's it's very awkward for us to sum this section up. Uh, just speaking about it, because this is just all done. I mean, remember, this is the book set up as an oral interview. That's basically just an interview, hmm. and 
the words are just painted so fantastically by this character and the story of this section is is unbelievable you just sit there and you you believe it and you feel the panic you feel the desperation but you also feel the hope as well and it, this is why we struggle sometimes to get this across is incredibly hard but it is done so well it is the, the audiobook is fantastic actually it's, it's been done incredibly well mm. and uh, I, when I was listening to it I was absolutely hooked I listened to the entire thing in about two days I think and I was finding excuses to listen to, <laughs> listen to the audiobook it was that good they give you nightmares it didn't actually, no. Thankfully. <laughs> and Interesting. Said, this, I got this, lots of nightmares. This, I'd had all my from is... the, uh, the previous week's podcast, which really <laughs> scared the shit out of me. <laughs> See, zombies don't frighten me. But, I mean, this isn't... A, this is a... At six hours, most people, this is not a short book. To me, it is, but this is... Even in audiobook terms, you will struggle to stop. Yeah, it's unputdownable in any form. And it's a similarly, it's a page turner. Every time, because it flits from one person to the next and it's every, every couple of pages you get to a different perspective on it, you can't, you can't stop just absorbing this, just grand tapestry of actually what happened. And it's, it's awful, but it's also, at times it's extremely uplifting. Mum and Dad and Denny saw the passing out parade at Puckapunyal was a long march from cadets. The 6th Battalion was the next to tour and it was me who drew the card. We did Canungra and water before we left. And Townsville lined the footpaths as we marched down to the quay. This clipping from the paper shows us young and strong and clean. And there's me in me slouch hat with me SLR and greens, God help me. I was only 19. One of the only really satirical moments, which is one of my favourite for being blackly humorous, is T. Sean Collins, the mercenary, talks about uh, looking after, effectively, the Big Brother house, or I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, with the, the rich set and the celebrity set, all languishing in this giant mansion surrounded by walls, which would be perfect for defending against zombies, except for the fact that they broadcast themselves on the internet and let everybody know where they are and what they're feeling and what they're wearing and they have uh, journalists hang in there, on, and they have cameras on. in there. It's a broadcast 24-7. This is Henry Rollins doing this part. Of Rollins Band. Of the Rollins Band. And he's Black. great! This character is awesome. This character is almost one you'd expect to find in a video game. He's that badass. Yeah. And they, the references they make, they never name. But you know exactly who they're talking about each time. They, I will point out one for people. Michael Moore is mentioned in there. Which I thought is quite clever and quite <laughs> I didn't get that that was Michael Moore, but you may be right. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it, it's never made... It's never made... It's always left open Paris enough Hilton. to be at least two people. I mean, so you can... Sort of, like there's, there's one where he's talking about the rapper with the, the, the two diamond earrings and this and that and the other. Mm. And that could fit several people, but you, you're left to, to assume it's... Well, he and doesn't it's, name it's, names. It's, it's Pete Diddy or, or it's you know, whoever's currently the, the, yeah. the rapper in vogue with, with the popular crowd. And, but yeah, that's the, the magic of not naming names is that uh, you know, when you read this in five years' time, some other twat will come along who will easily fit that bill. 
I look, the one bit I love about this is you can imagine the rich doing this. Yeah. Hiding behind their thick walls with their, oh, the, the sort of the private security and then trying to make a quick book off it. And the fall of that place is what makes me smile. They're what trying to ensure their future that? after the war. They can barely comprehend that it's going on. And they're fairly certain it's going to end soon-ish, but that they'll be kicking around afterwards. But, yeah, you're right. The fall, when it happens, it's not the undead who come to tear them to pieces. Well, they're sad that they think that it's going to be business as usual after the, the, the zombie threat is over. They, mm. they haven't even considered the fact that being famous for music or just for being famous is going to mean nothing in in two years' time, yeah. ten years' time even. They just cannot even conceive the fact that their life isn't going to carry on after this brief interruption. Yeah, as you say, the, the, the point at which that becomes clear is excellently told and excellently acted by, by Romans. Our radios were squawking. Contact, contact, southwest corner. Shit, there's hundreds of them. It was a damn big house. It took me a long time to get to my firing position. I didn't understand why the lookout was so nervous. So what if there's a couple hundred? They'd never get over the wall. Shit. We might as well just kick back and enjoy the party. Then I heard him shout, They're running! Holy fucking shit, they're fast! Fast zombies. That turned my gut. If they could run, they could climb. If they could climb, maybe they could think. And if they could think, now I was scared. I remember our boss's friends were all raiding the armory, racing around like extras in an 80s action flick by the time I made the third floor guest room window. I flipped the safety off my weapon and flipped the guards off my sight. It was one of the newest gens, a fusion of light amplification and thermal imaging. I didn't need the second part because G's gave off no body heat. So when I saw the searing bright green signatures of several hundred runners, my throat tightened. Those weren't living dead. There it is, I heard them shout. That's the house on the news. They were carrying ladders, guns, babies. A couple of them had these heavy satchels strapped to their backs. They were all booking it for the front gate. Big, tough steel that was supposed to stop a thousand ghouls. The explosion tore them right off their hinges sent them flipping into the house like giant ninja stars. Fire, the boss was screaming into the radio. Knock them down. Kill them. Shoot, shoot, shoot. The attackers, for lack of a better label, stampeded for the house. It was bedlam, exactly what you thought the end of the world was supposed to look like. I met the whore's rat dog as we were both heading for the back door. He looked at me. I looked at him. If it had been a conversation, it probably would have gone like, what about your master? What about yours? Fuck them. That was the attitude among a lot of the hired guns. The reason I hadn't fired a shot all night. We'd been paid to protect rich people from zombies, not against other not-so-rich people who just wanted a safe place to hide. You could hear them shouting as they charged in through the front door. Not, grab the booze, or rape the bitches. It was put out the fire and get the women and kids upstairs. I stepped over Mr. Political Comedy Guy on my way out to the beach. He and this chick, this leathery old blonde who I thought was supposed to be his political enemy, were going at it like there was no tomorrow. And hey, maybe for them, there wasn't. The United States Army sends a task force to Yonkers, New York in a high-profile military campaign intended to restore America's morale. 
Instead, the troops are overwhelmed and routed by the zombies due to reliance on tactics designed for human enemies who can be demoralized into retreat or surrender. Such tactics were utterly mismatched against an enemy which relies on human wave attacks and has no fear of death. That, that, that in the book is, is really phenomenal. He basically just goes to talk to an infantry soldier who was in the front lines for this position, yeah. for this part of the story in Yonkers. And it's it is very well set up because it, it's almost like a giant publicity stunt as well. Yeah. So there's the press there nearby with hel- you know cameras all trained on them. They've they've given the guys the latest greatest hardware. There's this um, battlefield system. Now I oh, before we start, I described it as imagine Ghost Recon Advanced Warfighter mixed with Left 4 Dead. You know they have the ability to see what's happening around the battlefield and cameras and all sorts of stuff, which is part of the fact that leads to the demise. Uh, the tactics, as um, Alex said, there are basically the tactics that we would use in a basic war. There's the enemy. If we do enough damage to them, they'll be demoralised. They'll either surrender or retreat. This isn't a human enemy. This just comes mm. forward and forward and forward. And the weapons they're using are designed to maim people and for the, pe- for the soldiers that they shoot to, to be dragged away by their compatriots and to be tended to and to become liabilities to the point where they don't want to fight anymore, which, of course, doesn't work. You can't maim zombies to death. You can only decapitate them. You can only destroy the head. And not only one of their weapons aims straight for the head, and that's the rifle. And they are that's the last line of defense. They're not even intended to use the rifles. Yeah, there's a, there's a scene in this part of the story which details what happens when things start exploding around the zombies and how enough... Because you all think, oh, an explosion, no, I'll take them out. No. That's why that's Left 4 Dead doesn't even match up, because you could technically explode all of those infected in Left 4 Dead, and that wouldn't be a problem. But you'd have to think of a video game where qu- things can only be killed in a very specific way. It's to be honest, in terms of video games, the, the closest thing I've played to, to the zombies in this, and the, the way you have to, to finish them off, mm. is actually Dead Space. Because in Dead Space, you can ah, yes, yeah. cut, them, cut them in half. It doesn't do a damn thing. They just crawl their way towards you. You take off another arm. Mm. The only way really to do it is to, to get rid of the head. Yeah. To remove enough of the body that so they, they can't do anything else. You know, they've got no, no limbs to, to, yeah. to crawl with. So yeah, Grawl meets Dead Space, but en masse, the same, the numbers of uh, Left 4 Dead. But imagine all the zombies you've ever killed in Left 4 Dead multiplied by 10,000. There's something like a million. This is the inhabitants of New York marching in a giant line to meet them. And it sounds fucking terrifying. When he starts talking about how it just fucks up is amazing mm. absolutely amazing because you get the somewhere in your mind you get that sense that tingle of the panic that these soldiers are feeling they they're doing what they're trained this puts people down they don't get up this is fine it's not going down did you not say before we even started this matt that land warrior was actually being used all the way up to 2007 one year after this was written it was never used it was never fielded it oh was, i bet uh, it was, was being development program that they were working on um, and that's what uh, Ghost Recon Advanced Warfighter was based on. Right. So if you've played that, that would give you a rough idea of, of the basic idea of, of what Land Warrior was supposed to be. That's now effectively been cancelled, and it's been rolled into Future Force Warrior, I think it's called, which is mm-hmm. the next version, uh, basically a toned-down version. But the idea is that everybody is connected, all of the soldiers are connected directly to their squad leader, who is all of whom are connected directly to their platoon leader and so on up the chain so you don't you know everyone can see what's happening immediately and deal with it 
any individual can mark a target if they're the only one who can see it they don't have to call someone over to then mark a target on a, on a computer mm. they can do it directly and it can just be cleared by someone who's you know 50 meters away that's the so it was at the time it was a, a something that was about to come into service here's where it doesn't work and it actually leads to the fall this battle scene is bigger than any that i have ever seen on film i i, I don't even know how they could actually do it return of the king is probably the only thing close enough to it. You get a sense of a siege going on against 200,000 orcs. Saving Private Run doesn't come close. Avatar doesn't come close to it in terms of numbers. It, although it has incredible scale and everything zooming around the place, the sense of numbers... It, 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 it's described as being one million zombies, but the initial front line of a couple of thousand, and it seems huge. But then, because Land Warrior can see everyone at the back, everyone can see what they're up against, and that's what freaks everybody out. That's the stuff of nightmares right there. And it's all told by Mark Hamill as Todd Wainio, probably my favourite performer in this whole book. He gets the lion's share of, of great scenes because he gets to do it twice. He is the front man, the trooper. He is the guy at the line, and you believe from the way he puts it across that he's been there. We were the last line of defence, the afterthought when it came to firepower. We were supposed to pick off the random lucky G who happened to slip through the giant bitch slap of our heavier stuff. Maybe one in three of us was expected to fire his weapon. One in every ten was expected to score a kill. They came by the thousands, spilling out over the freeway guardrails, down the side streets, around the houses, through them. So many of them, their moans so loud they echoed right through our hoods. We flipped our safeties off, sighted our targets. The order came to fire. I was a saw gunner, a light machine gun that you're supposed to fire in short control burst about as long as it takes to say, Die, motherfucker, die! The initial burst was too low. I caught one square in the chest. I watched him fly backward, hit the asphalt, then get right back up again as if nothing happened. Dude, when they get back up... I did my best to control my fire and my sphincter. Just go for the head, I kept telling myself. Keep it together, just go for the head. And all the time my saw's chattering, die, motherfucker, die. We could have stopped them, we should have. One guy with a rifle, that's all you need, right? Professional soldiers, trained marksmen, how could they get through? They still ask that, critics and armchair patents who weren't there. You think it's that simple? You think after being trained to aim for the center match your whole military career, you can suddenly make an expert headshot every time? You think in that straitjacket and suffocation hood it's easy to recharge a clip or clear a weapon jam? You think after watching all the wonders of modern warfare fall flat on their high-tech hyper-ass, that after already living through three months of the Great Panic and watching everything you knew as reality be eaten alive by an enemy that wasn't even supposed to exist, that you're going to keep a cool fucking head and a steady fucking trigger finger? Wainio stabs that finger at me. Well, we did! We still managed to do our job and make Zack pay for every fucking inch. Maybe if we'd had more men, more ammo, maybe if we'd just been allowed to focus on our job. His finger curls back into his fist. Land warrior. High-tech, high-priced, high-profile, netro-fucking-centric land warrior. To see what was in front of our face was bad enough, but spy bird uplinks were also showing how truly large the horde was. We might be facing thousands, but behind them were millions. Remember, we were taking on the bulk of New York City's infestation. This was only the head of one really long undead snake stretching all the way back to Times fucking Square. We didn't need to see that. I didn't need to know that. 
That little scared voice wasn't so little anymore. Oh shit, oh shit! It suddenly wasn't in my head anymore. It was in my earpiece. Every time some jerk-off couldn't control his mouth, Land Warrior made sure the rest of us heard it. There's too many! We gotta get the fuck out of here! Someone from another platoon, I didn't know his name, started hollering, I hit him in the head and he didn't die! They don't die when you shoot him in the head! I'm sure he must have missed the brain. It can happen around just grazing the inside of the skull. Maybe if he'd been calm and used his own brain, he would have realized that. Panic's even more infectious than the Z-germ, and the wonders of Land Warrior allowed that germ to become airborne. What? They don't die? Who said that? You shot it in the head? Holy crap, they're indestructible! All over the net you could hear this, browning shorts across the Info Super Highway. Everyone pipe down, someone shouted. Hold the line, stay off the net. An older voice you could tell, but suddenly it was drowned out in this scream, and suddenly my eyepiece, and I'm sure everyone else's, was filled with the sight of blood spurting into a mouth of broken teeth. The sight was from a dude in the yard of a house behind the line. The owners must have left a few reanimated family members locked in when they bugged out. Maybe the shock from the explosions weakened the door or something, because they came bursting out right into this poor bastard. His gun camera recorded the whole thing, fell right at the perfect angle. There were five of them, a man, a woman, three kids. They had him pinned on his back. The man was on his chest. The kids had him by the arms, trying to bite through his suit. The woman tore his mask off. You could see the terror in his face. I'll never forget his shriek as she bit off his chin and lower lip. Other countries suffer similarly disastrous defeats against their own hordes of the infected, and human civilization teeters on the brink of collapse. Nations are forced to retreat to safer territory. For example, the U.S. consolidates west of the Rocky Mountains with some isolated towns of survivors supplied by airdrop, while Japan evacuates its non-infected citizens to South Korea and Kamchatka. To halt the flow of infectious refugees from India, Iran destroys several key bridges within Pakistan, which leads to nuclear war between the two countries, which we mentioned earlier. As zombies freeze solid in the cold, many civilians in North America flee to the wilds of northern Canada. Approximately 11 million people die there of starvation and exposure after realizing they are unprepared for the harsh climate. Now that bit specifically was very harrowing for me because you're reading about these people fleeing their homes and houses that they put so much stock in and being told, go north, go north. 
and they travel up, and they're all in little groups, and they they think they're well prepared, and, and and they're not. They're not, and it's it's heartbreaking because you 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 know they start off with campfires and and with small it groups. Feels, it feels it's um, it starts like you follow a family basically. Yeah, uh, it's Jessica and daughter, and this is told by her many years later, and it just you know they keep going north. And the, I mean, these this family leaves really early, mm. really early on. It that is is quite clear. And they get so far north, and they set up camp with a lot of other people. And I don't want to say it's, it, it feels like a party atmosphere, but it's very relaxed, it's very happy. And over time, it steadily just degrades and becomes it becomes slow about survival. Once the little girl gets sick, uh, due to starvation and malnutrition, basically because of the situation these people are in, there's only one course of action left open to them. And it's, it, the, the worst thing is it's actually not even because of the zombies at this point. They, they deal with the zombies when the zombies turn up, but it's, it's, it's a giant refugee camp holed up in one of Canada's national parks, freezing to death and starving to death, and they can't move. They don't have the leadership or the ability to just up sticks and travel elsewhere to get themselves to somewhere where just the outside world isn't going to kill them. They went somewhere where they thought that they'd be safe because the zombies would effectively freeze in the snow, but so will they. And they, they leave themselves in a, in a situation where they're too weak to fight and too weak to run, and eventually it, it kills almost all of them. It's very harrowing, but the way she talks about it... She's is detached. Very, yes, and that's, that's, again, brilliant, and it's kind of creepy as well. Yeah. Same with Tom Wayne, he was very matter-of-fact to shut that off as some... And, as you said, disassociated themselves from actually being there. Almost nobody, now that you mention it, really gets upset. Nobody cries. At times they do. There's, there's points where people become very animated. But, yeah. it's, but they don't like, break down into the horror of what they're talking about. They've come to live with it with this sort of grim sense of, of a survivor. And yeah. that's, that's something universal. Yeah, I mean, I think that this particular section, as, 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 as was mentioned, it's not the zombies that that is the key focus. The zombies are barely mentioned. They've escaped from the zombies. They think they've got away. They're all very friendly and happy. And there's, there's almost a carnival atmosphere at times. People are helping. They're sleeping in their SpongeBob SquarePants sleeping bags that, with their boots on. It wasn't here, yeah. Um, and, and then it all goes to shit because all of a sudden everyone's right at the brink. And uh, unfortunately, the, the darker side of human nature comes out. Mm. And, and at times again they band together and this is when the zombies do turn up everyone clubs together and everyone works together and as soon as they're dealt with everyone goes back goes to, back to their own their own little space and protecting what they've got left and, and it just disintegrates again they don't have the ability to go no this is this is killing us we have to move if we have if we have to deal with the zombies we have to deal with the zombies but we if we stay here we're all going to die but they don't have that leadership and that's why to me I can never be in that group of people I would have to abandon them in the, in the very early stages and go elsewhere. Although, again, a lot of them can't because they've they've drove them from where they've come from. They they mm. drove a long way and they they hitchhiked a long way, mm. and then they're stuck there. They've got no real way of getting out because they've used whatever fuel they got left for lighting yeah. fires. And now that they they are trapped there because they can't walk anywhere because anywhere else they're going to be is going to be inherently worse than where they are because there's no one else to help them. So if they start walking south again. They're, they're, they're screwed and so they are trapped there. 
it really is a damned if you do, damned if you oh, don't situation. Rock and hard place, absolutely. But it's it's a lack of preparation and it's a belief that they will get bailed out of it eventually, that someone will come and save them and that th- they'll be told that it's all right and they can go back home. One thing I'm starting to realise as we're talking about this, this, again, is a failure of technology. It, it shows you how soft we've become in our life, mm. how, like, as you were saying, they're sleeping in their SpongeBob SquarePants, a sleeping bag, because, oh, when we go camping, that's all we need. You forget how Mother Nature is harsh. Yeah. yeah. We well, think sleeping bags are sleeping bags to most people, because, as, as it says, most people, uh, a kid's sleeping bag is something for a sleepover in someone's bedroom. Uh, not for a Canadian winter, and which is Arctic, pretty much. Which is, which is I mean, minus forty. I've got a friend who lives in Canada. It's regularly minus forty without wind chill. It's so cold that the snow isn't slipping anymore. It, uh, I can't even comprehend how cold that is. Minus ten, and I'm, I'm you know, too cold to go outside. You know. Yeah, we had that. You know, just think of the snow that left was a couple of months back. You know, we were had what minus ten, minus fourteen in places. I know it was up here. Now imagine it, you know, four times that. Most people, most people can't comprehend it because no, most people have never been that cold before. Uh, there's one point where she's talking about a, a, a GameCube or a games console or something. Yeah. It's, it's just basically frozen to a block of ice. And it's the kind of thing that people brought with them. They brought the, the kind of stuff that they then considered valuable mm. that has no value whatsoever. Well, you know, now that life has changed completely, people think they're going to go back to where they were. Yeah. Shortly, they think they're going to have to go through a brief period of of, um, of hardship, and then someone's going to come. The government are going to sort something out, and they get to go back home, and they're going to want their game cubes and their TVs and the, the you know, keep them away from the looters. Yeah. yeah, they want to take them because they're going to want them when they get back rather than realising that they are useless, they need to carry things that will help them survive. But this is one of those moments when the, the, the term zombie just pales away and you think to yourself, just substitute that with any particular threat that means that you have to get out of your, your homes and, and travel away from the cities. It's a very real, believable situation, and, and it just becomes apparent while you're reading this book, zombies are incidental. This is a story about us. Zombies are a catalyst. Yeah. Rather than, yeah, they, they're just something that causes all this... To, to, to take place. I mean, there's not actually that many sections, certainly in the audiobook, that are just about fighting zombies. Yeah. That, that, that's something that is mentioned, but it's only really a couple of sections that is actually about fighting zombies. The rest of it is about it's dealing with the, the, the problems that yeah. governments are facing with the people of a country or of the world. And that is the problem that most people are having to deal with. And that was most people's war, was, was fighting you know, humans' darker nature almost. Which leads us very neatly on to this next part. In South Africa, the government adopts a plan drafted by an ex-apartheid government official named Paul Redeker. Various governments worldwide adopt their own versions of the Redeker plan. Now, this part is fascinating. There's so many great moments in the book. This is one that you will not forget, yeah. ever. It's dark as you could possibly get, because it requires a certain shutting off of emotion to actually look at what the most logical thing to do would be at that point. But it's the kind of action that would make anyone who suggested doing it be seen as a monster. It needs someone who can break down the the, the, the problem of the, the zombie plague or outbreak, whatever you want to call it, to one of purely numbers. Logical. And and most people are just aren't emotionally able to do that because people aren't numbers, people are people. And to break it down to one of purely numbers is just not something most people can do because everyone would attach emotion to it and they'd be trying to weigh up these people and that people. Mm. You, you can't do it. You just can't possibly 
basically condemn that many people to death. Most people aren't emotionally capable of doing that. And it needs someone who can do that. But as you say, they're going to be demonised. Redeker works out logically who should be the people who live and who should die based on how fulfilling they can be to civilization and to how useful they'll be later on. He's branded as a racist, but it's disputed because to be a racist and hate one race, you have to love another, and he seems to loathe everybody equally. Or, no, in fact, doesn't hate them, he just feels nothing for anybody. He draws no distinction. And let's go back into this plan because I don't. This is such. This is uh, the book and the audiobook does such a well, great job of getting this across. So you have to imagine it as this: they are using. A, you have a safe zone. If you are on that safe zone, you will live and get to continue civilization. If you're the bait, however, you will also live. They will supply you, but effectively, you'll be there as uh, a chicken in a basket, waiting for the undead to just crowd around you for possibly years. Just to distract them. And to be able to think that up, that's cold. The Redeker plan portion of this book is the most standout of them all. And this is a book which has huge standout moments, but this is the cream of the crop. This is an amazing scene. It's a work of genius, that part is. That is how good it is. It is, honest to God, it is genius. And no spoilers, but it's also equally fascinating what happens to Redeker after that. It's not simple. He was ushered into a meeting of the president's surviving cabinet, where his report was read aloud to the room. You should have heard the uproar, with no voice louder than the defense minister's. Unacceptable! He bellowed. He was a Zulu. A ferocious man who would rather be fighting in the streets than cowering in a bunker. Running, hiding, cowering behind mountains, never! He was not alone. How can we explain this to our people, said the vice president. They'll be after our backsides faster than those things out there. The president was incensed, glaring at the safety security minister in command of the NIA. This is what you bring me, he snapped. The maniacal ramblings of an apartheid war criminal. Mr. President, said the clearly rattled security minister, you instructed me to find and retrieve Mr. Redeka. I did no such thing. President shot back. But Mr. President, the security minister said, I received an order. Not from me, bellowed the president. From me. That was another voice. A soft, quiet voice that sidelined him like thunder from God himself. He had been sitting against the back wall. Now he stood hunched over by age and supported by canes but with a spirit as strong and vital as it had ever been. The elder statesman, the father of our new democracy, the man whose birth name had been Lala, which some have translated simply into troublemaker. Arthur Sinclair, Jr. is the picture of an old-world patrician, tall, lean, with close-cropped white hair. 
He speaks into the ether, rarely pausing for questions. During the war, Mr. Sinclair was director of the U.S. government's newly formed Distress, or Department of Strategic Resources. I don't know who first thought of the acronym Distress, or if they consciously knew how much it sounded like Distress, but it certainly could not have been more appropriate. Establishing a defensive line at the Rocky Mountains might have created a theoretical safe zone, but in reality that zone consisted mainly of rubble and refugees. There was starvation, disease, homelessness in the millions. Industry was in shambles, transportation and trade had evaporated. And all of this was compounded by the living dead, both assaulting the Rocky Line and festering within our safe zone. We had to get our people on their feet again, clothed, fed, housed, back to work. Otherwise, this supposed safe zone was only forestalling the inevitable. That was why distress was created. One thing those New Dealers did better than any generation in American history was find and harvest the right tools and talent. Tools and talent? A term my son heard once in a movie. I found it described our reconstruction efforts rather well. Talent describes the potential workforce, its level of skilled labor, and how that labor can be utilized effectively. To be perfectly candid, our supply of talent was at a critical low. Ours was a post-industrial or service-based economy, so complex and highly specialized that each individual could only function within the confines of its narrow compartmentalized structure. We should have seen some of the careers listed on our first employment census. Everyone was some version of an executive or a representative, an analyst or a consultant, all perfectly suited to the pre-war world, but all totally inadequate for the present crisis. We needed carpenters, masons, machinists, gunsmiths. We had those people, to be sure, but not nearly as many as were necessary. The first labor survey stated clearly that over 65% of the present civilian workforce were classified F6, possessing no valued vocation. We required a massive job retraining program. In short, we needed to get a lot of white collars dirty. It was slow going. Air traffic was non-existent. Roads and rail lines were a shambles, and fuel. Good Lord, you couldn't find a tank of gas between Blaine, Washington, and Imperial Beach, California. Add to this the fact that pre-war America not only had a commuter-based infrastructure, but that such a method also allowed for severe levels of economic segregation. You would have entire suburban neighborhoods of upper-middle-class professionals, none of whom had possessed even the basic know-how to replace a cracked window. Those with that knowledge lived in their own blue-collar ghettos, an hour away in pre-war auto traffic, which translated to at least a full day on foot. Make no mistake, bipedal locomotion was how most people traveled in the beginning. Anyone A1, those with war-appropriate skills, became part of our CSSP, or Community Self-Sufficiency Program. A mixed group of instructors would be tasked with infusing these sedentary, overeducated, desk-bound cubicle mice with the knowledge necessary to make it on their own. It was an instant success. Within three months, you saw a marked drop in requests for government aid. I can't stress how vital this was to victory. It allowed us to transition from a zero-sum survival-based economy into full-blown war production. This was the National Re-Education Act, the organic outgrowth of the CSSP, I'd say it was the largest jobs training program since the Second World War, and easily the most radical in our history. You've mentioned on occasion the problems faced by the NRA. I was getting to that. The president gave me the kind of power I needed to meet any physical or logistical challenge. 
Unfortunately, what neither he nor anyone on earth could give me was the power to change the way people thought. As I explained, America was a segregated workforce, and in many cases that segregation contained a cultural element. A great many of our instructors were first-generation immigrants. These were the people who knew how to take care of themselves, how to survive on very little and work with what they had. These were the people who tended small gardens in their backyards, who repaired their own homes, who kept their appliances running for as long as mechanically possible. It was crucial that these people teach the rest of us to break from our comfortable, disposable consumer lifestyle, even though their labor had allowed us to maintain that lifestyle in the first place. Yes, there was racism, but there was also classism. You're a high-powered corporate attorney. You've spent most of your life reviewing contracts, brokering deals, talking on the phone. That's what you're good at. That's what's made you rich and what's allowed you to hire a plumber to fix your toilet, which allowed you to keep talking on the phone. The more work you do, the more money you make, the more peons you hire to free you up to make more money. That's the way the world works. But one day it doesn't. No one needs a contract reviewed or a deal brokered. What they do need is toilets fixed. And suddenly that peon is your teacher, maybe even your boss. For some, this was scarier than the living dead. Once on a fact-finding tour through L.A., I sat on the back of a re-education lecture. The trainees had all held lofty positions in the entertainment industry. A melange of agents, managers, creative executives, whatever the hell that means. I could understand their resistance, their arrogance. Before the war, entertainment had been the most valued export of the United States. Now they were being trained as custodians for a munitions plant in Bakersfield, California. One woman, a casting director, exploded. How dare they degrade her like this? She had an MFA in conceptual theater. She had cast the top three grossing sitcoms in the last five seasons, and she had made more in a week than her instructor could dream of in several lifetimes. She kept addressing that instructor by her first name. Magda, she kept saying. Magda, enough already. Magda, please. At first, I thought this woman was just being rude, degrading the instructor by refusing to use her title. I found out later that Mrs. Magda Antonova used to be this woman's cleaning lady. Yes, it was very hard for some, but a lot of them later admitted that they got more emotional satisfaction from their new jobs than anything closely resembling their old ones. I met one gentleman on a coastal ferry from Portland to Seattle. He had worked in the licensing department for an advertising agency, specifically in charge of procuring the rights to classic rock songs for television commercials. Now he was a chimney sweep, given that most homes in Seattle had lost their central heat and the winters were now longer and colder, he was seldom idle. I helped keep my neighbors warm, he said proudly. I know it sounds a little too Norman Rockwell, but I hear stories like that all the time. You see those shoes? I made them. That sweater, that's my sheep's wool. Like the corn, my garden. I could have gone head-to-head -head against the military for the duration of the war, but I'm grateful in the end that I didn't have to. When Travis D'Ambrosia became chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he not only invented the resource-to-kill ratio, but developed a comprehensive strategy to employ it. I always listened to him when he told me a certain weapon system was vital. I trusted his opinion in matters like the new infantry BDU or the Stanford Infantry Rifle. What was so amazing was to see how the culture of RKR began to take hold among the rank and file. You'd hear soldiers talking on the street in bars or on the train. Why have X when for the same price you could have ten Ys which could kill a hundred times as many Zs? Soldiers even began coming up with ideas on their own, inventing more cost-effective tools than we could have envisioned. I think they enjoyed it, 
improvising, adapting, outthinking the bureaucrats. The Marines surprised me the most. I'd always bought into the myth of the stupid jarhead, the knuckle-dragging, lock-jawed, testosterone-driven Neanderthal. I never knew that because the Corps always has to procure its assets through the Navy, and because admirals are never going to get too fired up about land warfare, that improvisation has had to be one of their most treasured virtues. Sinclair points above my head to the opposite wall. On it hangs a heavy steel rod ending in what looks like a fusion of shovel and double-bladed battle-axe. Its official designation is the Standard Infantry Entrenchment Tool, although to most, it is known as either the lobotomizer or simply the lobo. The Leathernecks came up with that one, using nothing but the steel of recycled cars. We made 23 million during the war. He smiles with pride. And they're still making them today. Wow. <laughs> the only thing I'll say is, if you've been watching The West Wing, mm -hmm. Series 7, and then you listen to this book, it will confuse the hell out of you. <laughs> He's, uh, it's, it's fascinating because basically all of the chaff, all of the wasted jobs that we currently have, that are mainly do, there to entertain people or sell products, get thrown out the window. Everyone has to be useful. And suddenly everyone who previously had a job that wasn't useful to anyone, really, where you put it down, and yet was being paid vast amounts of money to do it, suddenly is doing something relatively menial. And uh, as Neil said, a lot of the time getting a little more out of it eventually. It requires the human race to cut the bullshit, which I think is fucking brilliant. Oh, and how we wish that would happen. I, well, that's the thing. I don't want... I really don't want a zombie outbreak to happen. Well, no, no, not that bit. I just mean... Shutting <laughs> the crap. But the, it, it requires a disaster of that magnitude to get everybody to wake up. I don't want the bad to get the good, but you can't get that kind of, uh, of pulling together without that much bad. It, that is how we are set up psychologically. We can't get off a relatively comfortable ride for something that might be better if it requires huge uprooting of everything. It's not just that. It is a case of, like we were saying, this guy who was like a big shot is all of a sudden doing this manual, menial job, and for the first time in his life, he's happy. Yeah. That sort of mental adjustment is just not something people are, could probably even see. So we introduced this character, Joe Mohammed, who's um, he's in a wheelchair, mm. and... Um, in this, in the world that is now, what he is, I can't remember what they called it, but basically he's home defense. He's the guys that go around checking houses, mm. making sure everyone's Mind okay. Watchmen, sure. effectively. I would say more home so, guard yeah. would be a better analogy for this, because obviously they're also in charge of home defense as well as they are armed. They know how to take care of things. And this, uh, he talks about how he fought off a zombie himself, and he's wheelchair-bound. It was very specifically, it was a zombie that didn't have any legs. I thought that was so perfect. The way, effectively, a dragger, one with just a torso and, and arms and a head, uh, could quite easily have taken him down. And, and if he hadn't had the wheelchair, it would have taken a chunk out of his ankle. But uh, it grabs the wheelchair, and so he's able to actually take it out. Well, see, in that case, his disability was actually... Uh, advantage yeah. because he didn't he didn't get bitten it was his wheelchair that, that saved him and yeah. I thought it was quite a, sort of a poetic justice there and he also introduces the fact to certain other things uh, some of the misconceptions that were believed at the time as well oh, how yes. you could, how you could pretend to be a zombie and they, you know a la Shaun of the Dead and that would work no no it didn't just, work but zombies would just kill you then there was the the next stage up from there into a deep psychosis 
individuals known as quizlings, effectively people who snap and start to act like zombies, not because they think it'll save them, but just because that's all they know anymore. The zombies know that they are just regular human beings and they attack them and kill them. And the most creepy thing about that is that they don't scream. They just lie there being eaten. And that led to people believing that zombies could be trained to attack each other. It was just zombies killing and eating quizlings. Well, this also ties back into the um, the phalanx thing because um, it was it was mentioned at one point that uh, when when talking about the quizlings mm. that um, that was what one of the reasons why people bought into the yeah the, the that if a quizling attacked and beat you you might survive and not become a zombie and you would think to yourself well it's because so I've been you, taking phalanx exactly and that's partly what led to that in addition yeah. to the fact that people just wanted to believe there was a there was a cure for it there was evidence in, in uh, air quotes that, that it did work despite the fact that of course that it was complete bullshit yeah and uh, the final one that he brings to our attention which is I think the scariest one which is the ferals yeah people that have literally gone feral usually children who've been uh, taken away from uh, parents at an early age and, and grew up uh, psychologically broken don't understand the world they're in and they regress and have to be rehabilitated and I think most of the time it's a losing game they they can't be brought back and then there's uh, Last Man on Earths or people like Will Smith in uh, I Am Legend Legend. who convince themselves that everybody else is dead and actually end up being a real problem for the armed forces because every time they uh, wander into towns they find booby traps and get shotgunned in the face by people who set up the traps years beforehand and then promptly died. You know, or or just go crazy and start shooting people with sniper rifles from the roofs of buildings because they're obsessed with this survivor uh, mentality, which means that nobody else can be around them. Abbreviated to lamos. And one other bit I want to mention, while we're with the Alan Older character, we talk about criminals. Yeah, what's to be done with the criminal element? uh, And basically... What the United States does is very different to what some other countries do. It's never referenced which countries this is that it happens. So basically, criminals end up being the workforce. They are forced to work. That's it. They have no choice. A lot of other countries just kick them out and end up having to clean that up later when they find out that the criminals didn't die by the zombies, but they formed almost miniature armies. Yes, miniature armies. Cessationists again. Which they again they have to deal with because remember this is states. They also have to deal with the survivalists. This moments in this book where he's talking about now if it was anything else you would be bored you would find it dull but as both me and matt agreed you just wanted to hear more Mm. and more Mm. in the end i think that that, don't they uh, have criminals who steal paraded around with a placard on that says i stole my neighbor's firewood or something else the the idea of public shame being enough of a preventative uh, more so than corporal punishment or or indeed incarceration yeah and it, it, for most things it works so it's an interesting idea in this world imprisoning someone and feeding them and keeping them in a cell and having an extra guy to watch that person is ridiculous everyone's got to pull their weight also if that's if that's the punishment a lot of people would choose to do that because then they don't have to worry about surviving. They've got someone else to look after them. Oh, and they do mention later on that they that people who, who come in and try and steal from them, uh, that they actually often just bring them in and ask, what do you want? So that they don't have to worry about people stealing from them. It's, it only obviously works in some scenarios. It actually, it, it, in a lot of cases, a lot of the people trying to steal from them would rather just have a place in society, purely for the security, just so they don't have to worry about where they're going to get their next meal. Well, yeah, if you're, you're out in the wasteland surviving one hour to the next mm. and you come across somewhere that you're not convinced is going to let you in, you don't want to be thrown out and, and locked out. So you go yeah. and steal something so as you get to stay there. 
it's got to be better than wandering, <laughs> wandering the, the remnants of the world. It's a crime of desperation, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. Seriosha Garcia Alvarez, uh, played by John Torturo, uh, who gives a really impassioned uh, long speech about how Cuba was the winner of the zombie war. The a huge amount of uh, American refugees that they, they got, they initially kept them in camps and then slowly worked out a way to allow them into society in Cuba uh, in the capacity of uh, low-paid workers, and that's a, completely flipping America on its ass. So America was working the, the jobs that Cubans would work in America. And somehow, by cherry-picking the best of communism and capitalism, Cuba flourishes as a nation. Another fascinating and gripping part of the book, how democracy actually spreads in Cuba because of the refugees, because the idea comes with them. Mm. And as we all know, the hardest thing to kill is an, an idea. idea. People in Britain will be very happy to hear from David Allen Forbes, who stayed a long time with the Queen in Windsor Castle. The Queen, it would appear, opened up the castles in England as havens uh, to anyone who can get to them, because the castle is a fantastic place to be during a, at least a level three zombie outbreak. Windsor was your castle. Well, not mine personally. I mean, you were there. It was. From a defensive standpoint, as close as one could come to perfection. Before the war, it was the largest inhabited castle in Europe, almost 13 acres. It had its own well for water and enough storage space to hold a decade's worth of rations. The fire of 1992 led to the state-of-the-art suppression system, and the subsequent terrorist threats upgraded security measures to rival any in the UK. Not even the general public knew what their tax dollars were paying for. Bulletproof glass... Reinforced walls, retractable bars, and steel shutters hidden so cleverly in the windowsills and door frames. But of all of our achievements at Windsor, nothing can rival the siphoning of crude oil and natural gas from the deposits several kilometers beneath the castle's foundation. It had been discovered in the 1990s, but never exploited for a variety of political and environmental reasons. You can believe we exploited it, though. Our contingent of royal engineers rigged a scaffolding up and over our wall and extended it to the drilling site. It was quite an achievement. And you can see how it became the precursor to our fortified motorways. On a personal level, I was just grateful for warm rooms, hot food, and, in a pinch, the Molotovs and flaming ditch. It's not the most efficient way to stop a Z-head, I know, but as long as you've got them stuck and can keep them in the fire. And besides, what else could we do when the bullets ran out and we were left with nothing else but an odd lot of medieval hand weapons? There were quite a bit of those about, in museums, personal collections, and not a decorative dud among them. These were real, tough and tested. They became part of British life again, ordinary citizens traipsing about with a mace or a halberd or double-bladed battle-axe. I myself became rather adept with this claymore, although you wouldn't think of it to look at me. He gestures, slightly embarrassed, to the weapon almost as long as himself. It's not really ideal. It takes a lot of skill, but eventually you learn what you can do, what you never thought you were capable of, what others around you are capable of. Forbes hesitates before speaking. He is clearly uncomfortable. I hold out my hand. Thank you so much for taking the time. There's more. If you're not comfortable, 
No, please, it's quite all right. Forbes takes a breath. She... she wouldn't leave, you see. She insisted, over the objections of Parliament, of the Prime Minister, of her own family, to remain at Windsor. As she put it, for the duration. I thought maybe it was misguided nobility or maybe fear-based paralysis. I tried to make her see reason, begged her almost on my knees. Hadn't she done enough with the Balmoral Decree? turning all her estates into protected zones for anyone who could reach and defend them. Why not join her family in Ireland or the Isle of Man? Or at least, if she was insisting on remaining in Britain, Supreme Command Headquarters north of the Antony. What did she say? The highest of distinctions is service to others. Her father had said that. It was the reason he had refused to run to Canada during the Second World War. The reason her mother had spent the Blitz visiting civilians huddled in the tube stations beneath London. The same reason to this day we remain a united kingdom. They were viewed very much like castles, I suppose. As crumbling, obsolete relics with no real modern function other than as tourist attractions. But when the skies darkened and the nation called, both reawoke to the meaning of their existence. One shielded our bodies, the other our souls. Tomonaga Ijiro, the uh, warrior monk, blind man, you know, who lost his sight, observing the uh, Hiroshima bomb back in the 40s and became an old, shamed, blind gardener, strangely ended up very, very well equipped to deal with the undead. He was left in a, a national park-type wilderness with nobody else around, ready for death. When he decided that effectively the gods had allowed him to live and started to take stock of his surroundings, he was able to map out in his mind his surroundings. And because he wasn't using sight at all and was entirely reliant on hearing, he could hear a zombie coming from miles away and then would simply limber up get his shell and spade ready, and then quietly, calmly take it out. And he, he effectively becomes this perfect zombie hunter within his own territory. Again, another fantastic character. I keep heaping praise on this. Uh, if you haven't read, if you haven't heard, once you do, you will understand why we heap so much praise on this. Mm. He does deserve oogles of praise heaped upon it. It, it really is a truly staggeringly good work it's fantastic and then there's one of my favourite stories Colonel Christina Eliopoulos uh, who gets ends up parachuting down behind enemy lines deep in zombie country has to make her way back to the highway and, and does so by talking to a woman on the radio who keeps her going and I know you aren't really a fan of Lost but it's it's there's so many stories in here that could effectively be an episode of Lost or something because you go deeply into their personal lives and, and you hear this account from them and it's like we're exploring all these different characters and we put them into this horrible dramatic situations and you desperately root for them to get through even though you know since since they're talking they did get through but you're still edge of your seat jangled nerves listening to these stories desperate for them to, to make it through and her, her story of how she got out was uh, is, is absolutely fascinating and, and, and uplifting did you ever read all quiet on the western front remark paints a vivid picture of germany becoming empty meaning that toward the end of the war they were simply running out of soldiers. You can fudge the numbers, send the old men and little boys, but eventually you're going to hit the ceiling. Unless every time you killed an enemy, he came back to life on your side. 
That's how Zack operated, swelling his ranks by thinning ours. And it only worked one way. Infect a human, he becomes a zombie. Kill a zombie, he becomes a corpse. We could only get weaker while they might actually get stronger. All human armies need supplies. This army didn't. No food, no ammo, no fuel, not even water to drink or air to breathe. There were no logistic lines to sever, no depots to destroy. You couldn't just surround and starve them out or let them wither on the vine. Lock a hundred of them in a room, and three years later they'll come out just as deadly. It's ironic that the only way to kill a zombie is to destroy its brain, because as a group, they have no collective brain to speak of. There was no leadership, no chain of command, no communication or cooperation on any level. There was no president to assassinate, no HQ bunker to surgically strike. Each zombie is its own self-contained automated unit. And this last advantage is what truly encapsulates the entire conflict. You've heard the expression total war? <laughs> it's pretty common throughout human history. Every generation or so, some gas bag likes to spout about how his people have declared total war against an enemy, meaning that every man, woman, and child within his nation were committing every second of their lives to victory. That is bullshit on two basic levels. First of all, no country or group is ever 100% committed to war. It's just not physically possible. You can have a high percentage, so many people working so hard for so long, but all of the people? All of the time? What about the malingerers or the conscientious objectors? What about the sick, the, the injured, the very old, the very young? What about when you're sleeping, eating, taking a shower, taking a dump? Is that a, a dump for victory? That's the first reason total war is impossible for humans. The second is that all nations have their limits. There might be individuals within that group who are willing to sacrifice their lives. It might even be a relatively high number for the population, but that population as a whole will eventually reach its maximum emotional and physiological breaking point. The Japanese reached theirs with a couple of American atomic bombs. The Vietnamese might have reached theirs if we dropped a couple more, but, thank holy Christ, our will broke before it came to that. That is the nature of human warfare. Two sides, trying to push the other past its limit of endurance. And no matter how much we like to talk about total war, that limit is always there. Unless you're the living dead. For the first time in history, we faced an enemy that was actively waging total war. They had no limits of endurance. They would never negotiate, never surrender. They would fight until the very end because, unlike us, every single one of them, every second of every day, was devoted to consuming all life on Earth. That's the kind of enemy that was waiting for us beyond the Rockies. That's the kind of war we had to fight. During a conference near Honolulu aboard USS Saratoga, most of the world's leaders indicate they want to wait out the zombie plague, but the US president successfully argues that the only way to survive physically and psychologically is to go on the offensive. I was standing next to the Russian delegate, trying to prevent her from climbing over her seat when I heard another American voice. It was their president. The man didn't shout, didn't try to restore order. He just kept talking in that calm, firm tone that I don't think any world leader has since been able to duplicate. 
he even thanked his fellow delegates for their valued opinions and admitted that, from a purely military perspective, there was no reason to push our luck. We'd fought the living dead to a stalemate, and eventually future generations might be able to re-inhabit the planet with little or no physical danger. Yes, our defensive strategies had saved the human race, but what about the human spirit? The living dead had taken more from us than land and loved ones. They'd robbed us of our confidence as the planet's dominant life form. We were a shaken, broken species, driven to the edge of extinction and grateful only for a tomorrow with perhaps a little less suffering than today. Was this the legacy we would leave to our children? A level of anxiety and self-doubt not seen since our simian ancestors cowered in the tallest trees. What kind of world would they rebuild? Would they rebuild at all? Could they continue to progress knowing that they had been powerless to reclaim their future? And what if that future saw another rise of the living dead? Would our descendants rise to meet them in battle or simply crumple in meek surrender and accept what they believe to be their inevitable extinction? For this reason alone, we had to reclaim our planet. We had to prove to ourselves that we could do it and leave that proof as this war's greatest monument. The long, hard road back to humanity or the regressive ennui of Earth's once proud primates. That was the choice, and it had to be made now. So typically Norte Americano, reaching for the stars with her asses still stuck in the mud. Determined to lead by example, the United States military reinvents itself to meet the specific challenges involved in fighting the living dead. Automatic weapons and mobility are replaced by semi-automatic rifles and formation firing. Troops are retrained to focus on headshots and slow, steady rates of fire, and a multi-purpose hand tool, the Lobo, is designed to destroy zombie heads close up. In two north-south lines stretching across North America, and the U.S. military crosses the continent, systematically destroying the zombies and reclaiming outposts of survivors, whether they want to be reclaimed or not. And this is when we get to actually hear Wayne Yo talking about them fighting back and how they've they've stripped the troops down to bare minimum of what they actually need to get by. They just they've gotten rid of all the bulky body armor that they had before, designed for the previous war, and, and they're just wearing blue coveralls with sort of Kevlar or something like that woven into them, which will effectively allow them to likely be on their feet during a melee, but also be able to calmly take up a sniping position and just shoot zombies for hours on end. And they pair the rifle down to just something which is extremely efficient. It's got wooden hardware. It's easily convertible. Oh, it's got this standard infantry rifle, or SIR, which they reverently call it. <laughs> they work out a kind of round called the cherry pie, which is almost guaranteed to kill a zombie with one shot to the head. And then they just work in lines and take out legions of the undead carefully, calmly, and quietly. And one of the best things I liked about it was that if their performance started to slacken, they had people watching them at all times, and if they started to miss zombies, geez, or as they termed them, Zack, 
they get tapped on the shoulder and they take five, you have a pee break, uh, have a drink, and then they come back and then they start shooting again. And it's that sort of sense of attention to the troops and working out what they need as opposed to what would look good. It's a really great way of, of showing that, uh, I don't know, it's, it sounds a little Disneyland, but a military that cares about its own troops as opposed to a military that cares about how it looks in front of the world will triumph. Yeah, this is another point at which the attention to detail really comes to the fore. I don't know who Max probably is getting his military information from, but... Um, he doesn't actually reveal he, it. It mentions he, that he, he doesn't. is alarmingly close on many of them. Yeah, but he's, he's just developed an entirely new military doctrine, completely reinvented what the military does based on an entirely fictional situation. Mm. But there's little things. The new training method for fighting zombies is to fire one shot every second, yeah. which is f- so much slower than you would fire in a, a normal a situation today. Mm. It's all about, you know, you throw a lot of lead at one person, you're going to take him, you're going to hit something vitally, yeah. throw five bullets at him. This is and about precision and mechanical precision at that, training with a metronome. Uh, yeah, and going back to the psychological evaluation of the troops, if you start firing too slowly or too quickly you get pulled out because if you fire too quickly you're wasting ammunition and you're you're not aiming carefully enough and it's a completely different way of, of operating and I just thought, I just thought the attention to detail and that was fantastic just the, the and it, I was certainly and completely I was really you know, it really was uh, a complete package that he, he came up with it yeah. and it really really make, gives the story some serious depth it actually it does point out that a lot of the uh, leaders and the nations that start to succeed are ones that start to think about how people feel and at the same time that the fighting forces that succeed do things extremely logically as well. It's a, it's a, it's a brilliant marrying of the left and right brain and being able to shut off emotion and just be able to do things mechanically, but also for people back behind you to have your back and to know when to stop. Again, it's, it's a, it's a different way of thinking because, um, with, with zombies as your enemy, you don't ever have to deal with an unexpected situation. Yeah. The only thing you've got to deal with that you're not expecting is a zombie coming up from behind you from out of a basement or a drain or whatever it might be. But what you do have to deal with, switching switching off and becoming a machine, which people aren't used to doing, and fighting for hours and hours and hours, doing a really easy job, headshotting zombies is a piece of... It's just simple. If you've got the right tools, yeah. You've got the training, you've got the tools. It's simple. They don't... Oh, they even mentioned Ghostbusters. We had the tools, we had the talent. They don't say what it's from, but that was from (laughs) Ghostbusters. By the way, I do want to point out this tons of um, pop culture references. Oh, there's little references all over the place. And every time you work out one, like Alex has just done, you all smile. Yeah. Uh, Tom Wayne, I think, talks about um, finding himself surrounded by walls of of zombies 20 feet high. Yeah. Uh, If you you get to a wall of people a foot high in in a real-life situation now, you wouldn't ever get that far because you start seeing a wall of bodies forming you're going to run like buggery because clearly you're facing something you can't win yeah. uh, against and, and you so, snap psychologically just at the notion so, of that many and, and this is the exact opposite of that people face it's almost boredom setting in again to remove yourself from the emotion and, and the, the immensity of it to become as they are to out G the G absolutely and it was just it's a brilliant bit of the book and, and I he's my, my favourite character out of the lot I think it's great the bits with Todd Wayne 
just the descriptions of the two different battles and the two extremes of, of what happens. Well, he's not like a fantastic, quirky, personality-laden character. He's just a battle-hardened warrior. He's a man that, that we can all relate to as, as somebody who's a relatively simple guy who's been in, he's been in the shit and he's seen, he has distaste and disapproval for people who don't know what they're doing giving the orders. And it's really fantastic when you see that the people actually do know what they're doing. We could hear the barking. The K's were bringing them in. We started seeing G's on the horizon. Hundreds. I started shaking, even though it wasn't the first time I had to face Saxon's Yonkers. I'd been in the clean and sweep operations in L.A. I'd done my time in the Rockies when the summer thawed the passes. Each time I got the major shakes. The dogs were recalled, racing behind our lines. We switched over to our primary enticement mechanism. Every army had one by now. The Brits would use bagpipes, the Chinese used bugles, the South Africans used to smack their rifles with their assay guys and belt out those Zulu war chants. For us, it was hardcore Iron Maiden. Now, personally, I've never been a metal fan. Straight classic rock's my thing, and Hendrix's Driving South is about as heavy as I get. But I had to admit, standing there in that desert wind with the trooper thumping in my chest, I got it. The PEM wasn't really for Zach's benefit. It was to psych us up, take away some of Zach's mojo. You know, take the piss out, as the Brits say. Right about the time Dickinson was belting, as you plunge into a certain death, I was pumped, surcharged and ready, eyes fixed on this growing closing horde. I was like, come on, Zach, let's fucking do this. Just before they reached the front range marker, the music began to fade. The squad leader shouted, front rank ready, and the first line knelt. Then came the order to take aim. And then, as we all held our breath, as the music clicked off, we heard, Fire! The front rank just rippled, cracking like a saw on full auto, and dropping every G that crossed the first markers. We had strict orders. Only the ones crossing the line. Wait for the others. We trained this way for months. By now, it was pure instinct. They started piling up forming this artificial palisade at the first range marker, this ridge of corpses that got higher and higher each minute. We were actually building an undead fortification, creating a situation where all we had to do was pop every head that popped over the top. The brass had planned for this. They had a periscope tower thingy that let officers see right over the wall. They also had real-time downlinks from satellites and recon drones, although we, the grunts, had no idea what they were seeing. Land Warrior was gone for now, so all we had to do was concentrate on what was in front of our faces. You'll take my life, but I'll take yours too! You fire musket, but I'll run you through! So when you're waiting for the next attack, you better stand, there's no turning back!
Ten years after the official end of the zombie war, millions of undead are still alive and the geopolitical landscape of the earth has been transformed. A democratic Cuba has become the world's most thriving economy and international banking capital. China has become a democracy after a civil war that ended with the Chinese nuclear submarine launching intercontinental ballistic missiles against the communist leadership, but has been vastly depopulated, while Tibet, freed from Chinese rule, hosts the world's most populated city. Following a religious revolution, Russia is now an expansionist theocracy. North Korea is completely empty, the entire population thought to have relocated underground, though no one is certain whether the tunnels may be home to 23 million survivors or 23 million zombies. The United Nations fields a large allied military force engaged in eliminating the remaining undead, frozen zombies thawing in the spring, large hordes re- resurfacing from the ocean floor, and areas still overrun. Major effects of the war were a drastic reduction in the human population, which is alluded to have been brought to the brink of extinction, and the devastation of many environments and species, as much by desperate humans as by marauding zombies. And that is effectively where it leaves off. It leaves you with a world that has clawed its way back. By no means have all the zombies been removed, but it's a world that can cope with the zombies now. And that maybe, because they can now deal with them, there won't be a World War Z 2. Or maybe they will. Or maybe they will. It's, it's an older people because they've had the experience, but it's a younger people because they've been reduced down to the survivors. Yeah, I mean, it finishes. It, it's not a, a, a neat and tidy uh, movie. We won, and we won. That was the last yeah, zombie it's not kills. A case of, it's zombie. not like Shaun of the Dead where you could basically got like one zombie left in a, yeah. in a garden shed, and it's all done and dusted. But it does end. There's still zombies. There's still a huge problem, and it's still something people have to deal with them daily. But there's a note of real hope that it's something that people can deal with daily. It's not something extraordinary. It's just like dealing with the weather in the Arctic. If if you live in the far north of Canada, it's something you can deal with. You're equipped to deal with it. And it's hard, but it's the human race is going to has fought its way through it and is going to is going to come out the other side. Mm. But the world is very different. But there's a real hope to the end of it. It's really quite uplifting, the end, the, the, the sense that if we don't fight back now, will our children be able to fight back? Who's going to fight back for us? America has to lead by example, and the rest of the world are able to actually deal with it in their own way as well. It's a note of hope that's needed as well after yeah. the, 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 the rest of the book. <laughs> Which can get very dark and very low. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, there's a theory, basically, that goes along. In a story, you can make it as bleak as possible. You can make it as horrible as possible. And you can get away with it, as long as you give them a happy ending. And this book, uh, for the type of book it is, does have a happy ending. I give you The Road. I wouldn't call that ending happy. there's There's a tiny kernel tiny little pinprick of light, but it's the most depressing book in the world. And actually, The Road's... It's not far off that, that that sense of desperation. You get flashes of that in in this uh, in this. But what other things is this like? I honestly cannot think of another movie like this. The only thing I could perhaps reference to this or similar to this is Fallout. Yeah, Fallout Three has flashes of this and similar. Fallout Three has a, a crazy note of humour running through it because otherwise you'd just kill yourself. <laughs> which I don't really think this does have and it doesn't address it isn't anywhere near as clever as this 
But it actually, in terms of uh, the, the thinking behind it, West Wing, Battlestar Galactica, that sense of, of, of dealing with the fates of a lot of people and giant moral choices being involved and, and just some people at the top having to make these decisions and people at the bottom having to actually implement the end results of these decisions. Battlestar Galactica is actually pretty damn close because that deals with extinction oh. level. Now the party's over. I'm so tired Then I see you coming Out of nowhere Much communication In emotion Without conversation Or a notion Missing in action. Altogether, there are 21 voices on the audiobook, but the paperback itself has 42, leaving half the words unspoken. This is entirely understandable for an abridged work, but it does mean that if you want the whole story, you'll need to track down the book itself. Absent from the audiobook are the following. Stanley MacDonald, an Alpha Team operative in Greece. Fernando Oliveira, a doctor in Brazil. He's the one who talks about the heart surgery going wrong because there's a zombie heart. Jacob Niathi, a boat captain in Barbados. Breckenridge Breck Scott, the creator of Phalanx, who uh, hides in Antarctica because everyone wants to kill him. Grover Carlson, uh, the alternative fuel collector and former White House chief of staff. He collects cowpats for a living. Mary Jo Miller, the mayor and chief architect of Troy, Montana. That's an entire town on stilts. They're connected via various walkways, which means that if one house becomes infected by zombies, they can simply retract the passages between them and uh, then isolate the house, quarantine it, kill all the zombies inside, and then reattach it. It's brilliant. And Mary came up with the idea. That sounds freaking awesome. Gavin Blair, a combat dirigible pilot at Parnell Air Base, Memphis, Tennessee. He's a, a contemporary of Colonel Christina Eliopoulos. Sharon, who I mentioned before, a feral at Topeka, Kansas. Maria Zuganova, a former soldier and breeder in Kozir, Holy Russian Empire. She talks about what the Russian army did to keep its soldiers in line. Decimations. They force their armed forces to shoot one-tenth of their number. They get them into a group of ten and decide who's going to... They have to, de- they have to decide and pull the trigger on who's going to die. The decimations. It's absolutely harrowing. And she ends up as a breeder having... Uh, you know, she's on her eighth pregnancy because they need to bring up the numbers in the Russian Empire. But at the same time, she loves the motherland and she feels that they've regained their strength and they're feared again in the world. It's chilling. And at the same time, it's, it's like the Redica plan. What must be done to bring back the strength of a country? Odin Taras... Kondratyuk, a veteran in a Ukrainian sanatorium. Sada Khan, an engineer and former soldier in Rajasthan, India. Roy Elliott, a film director in Malibu, California. Now, I'm going to talk about Roy Elliott for a short time. Imagine Steven Soderbergh, someone who was famous before the war, being asked to shoot documentaries for the troops to raise morale. 
because people had started to become so depressed that they were killing themselves and the suicide figures were reaching higher than the zombie casualties in the camps and fortresses. So he ended up shooting effectively propaganda films and taking them around the country. And while the immediate responses to them weren't particularly, oh, thank God, this is fantastic, the suicide rates kept dropping and dropping and people actually were getting some shred of hope from it. And there's a fantastic moment. You know what? I'm going to read a bit from the book again. The name Avalon comes from stock footage one of the students had shot during the siege. It was the night before the last worst attack when a fresh horde from the east was clearly visible on the horizon. The kids were hard at work, sharpening weapons, reinforcing defences, standing guard on the walls and towers. A song came floating across the campus from the loudspeaker that played constant music to keep morale up. A script student with a voice like an angel was singing the Roxy music song. It was such a beautiful rendition and such a contrast with the raging storm about to hit. I laid it over my preparing for battle montage. I still get choked up when I hear it. He basically films America's hardware in action, just so people can see zombies getting fucked up by military machinery, even if it's not particularly effective, just to give them hope that America can still kick ass. His job was to prevent people from falling asleep and being so depressed that they couldn't get up again. There's a few more people who weren't uh, on the audio, but Barati Palchigar, an information reception worker at the Federated States of Micronesia. Hyungol Choi, director of the Korean CIA demilitarized zone, South Korea. Kondo Tatsumi. Now, this is interesting. A warrior monk and former otaku from Kyoto, Japan. That sound familiar? Yes, it does. Yeah, he's the student of Ijiro. Yeah, yeah he's, he's the student of the blind monk. You get the other side of his story. He's, he's now sort of tanned and bald and very focused, but he talks about when the outbreak happened. He was a geeky high school kid, like every kid in, in every anime, uh, light in Death Note, if you've ever seen that. Uh, ob- <laughs> yeah, <I have. laughs> obsessed with being on the net all the time, checking facts back and forth. He would be very similar to a lot of us, you know, hyper geek, obsessed with his life online. So when the zombies are pretty much clawing at his door, he can't comprehend it. So he ends up having to, you know, fight for his life and uh, ends up meeting up with the Jiro. And you don't see what happens after that, but clearly he becomes a survivor. But it's it's really fascinating to see how he slowly goes from a very introverted kid to someone who actually could fight for his own existence. Shu Zakai, a submarine captain in the Forbidden City in Beijing. That whole episode is like a whole episode of Battlestar Galactica. Uh, it's it's about how these the, the Chinese military force steal a submarine. Or don't steal it, they're in it, they just go AWOL. And they're terrified that they're being hunted around the world. And... I won't spoil exactly what happens, but uh, it's fantastic. Is this the crew that fired the ICBM? It is. I won't tell you what happens, but it's it's a very uh, it's a fascinating tale of life in a very confined space, but one of the only places you can really be free of Zach. Terry Knox, an Australian astronaut. That was absolutely harrowing. I'm not going to read that because my Australian accent would not do it justice. But uh, it's a fascinating story about what would happen if you were on a space station watching the world go to hell. Oh, fuck. I still want to... I want to... I, okay, I, I, need the, I need this book. Just buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> I need this book just for that. That alone has just made me go, yes. I, well, yeah, I, it, it has, but I had an idea of writing a short story or... Uh, write a story about that precise thing and now I know someone's fucking done it <laughs> bastards 
Sorry. That was, well, procrastination has done me again. <laughs> so basically, this is... Uh, he's... What? So he's up here on, let's say... the. He's up on the International Space Station. It is, yeah. What do you want to know? I mean, I don't want to spoil anything. But, uh, basically, I'm guessing he's up there, what, for the duration of uh, of the war with Zack, or the majority of... Is he trapped of up there, or is he... He, is he stays up there. Uh, he stays up there longer than is healthy. So and not keeps, not because of obsession, because he ha- because of duty. So he's he's stuck there. He can't come down now because I'm assuming he's up there because if he leaves and no one controls the space station, it hits Earth. Yes, ah. it's it's the remarkable product of human endeavor, and he can't leave that. It's it's a fantastic story. Darnell Hackworth, uh, K-9 Corps in Ainsworth, Nebraska, he talks about the dogs that were trained to take down the zombies or to hunt out the zombies and the sacrifices they made. Father Sergei Ryzkov, a priest in Siberia who uh, went along with the military and had a particularly grim task. And Michael Choi, a USS Navy diver, part of his mission is actually to go down to the depths and, and clean up the last of the uh, zombies that are on the bottom of the ocean. It sounds terrifying, but he's kind of this surfer dude at the same time. So it's this brilliant cocktail of horror and crush from uh, Finding Nemo. And then finally, André Reynard, a French tunnel rat in Quebec, Canada. If you think everybody else had it tough... The French military who had to traverse the tunnels, the labyrinth of tunnels underneath Paris, most of which are partially submerged to get wow. to flush the zombies out of there. That is just five minutes alone with him would be the stuff of nightmares for the rest of your life. And he's a very bitter man. So if you didn't know this, Paris has vast catacombs. And I take yeah. it it's that that they're clearing out. Yeah. And there's natural gas and water and cave-ins and fire and everything you could possibly pile on top of what one troop of understaffed, undervalued men. The opposite of what Todd Wainio went through. They were wow. shat upon. And it's a really somber note to end the book on. I need this book rather badly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just making a decision whether to order the paper copy or the Kindle copy because I could start reading the Kindle copy straight away. <laughs> uh, that's a good choice. I went for the paper copy because it sits so neatly next to my zombie survival guide. I like to be able to just pick it up and thumb through it. I like the heft of having it in my hand. I would. I like the ability to just hand this to someone and say, "You have to read this." Oh, totally. I mean, I much prefer reading the book. I don't have a Kindle. I have uh, an Android phone. This is going to be a very rare book review because I don't read books. And they won't be turning up much on Gonzo. But this I mean, one turned much down. I'll be the Dresden Files. <laughs> okay. If you haven't read them, you should. Let's finish up with one final possible star of potential in the future. The movie. After a bidding war with Leonardo DiCaprio's production company, Appian Way, Brad Pitt's Plan B Entertainment secured the screen rights to the novel in 2007 one year after it had been completed. The screenplay was written by Babylon 5 and Rising Stars creator J. Michael Straczynski. Now, if you told me that before I'd even read this book, I'd be like, yes, okay, well, I want to I read this right now because J. Michael Straczynski is one of my favourite comic writers. That gives me a, a, a bit of a ray of hope there, I have to say. And if, by the way, if you love uh, World War Z, read the comic series Rising Stars. It's about us, once again. It's about superheroes, but it's about us. 
He identified the challenge in adapting the work as creating a main character out of the book that reads as a UN report on the zombie war. Mark Forster, uh, who directed Monsters Ball, Finding Neverland and, unfortunately, Quantum of Solace, signed on to direct and described the film as reminiscent of 1970s conspiracy thrillers like All the President's Men. Straczynski, however, identified 2002 spy film The Bourne Identity as an appropriate comparison and noted that the film will have a large international scope which maintains the political emphasis. When asked about his involvement with the film, Brooks stated that he had zero control but favoured a role for Brad Pitt and expressed approval for Straczynski as screenwriter. In an interview with Fangoria, Brooks said, I can't give it away, but Straczynski found a way to tie it all together. The last draft I read was amazing. An early script was leaked onto the internet in 2008. Cool News reviewed the script in March 27th and said, This isn't just a good adaptation of a difficult book. It's a genre-defining piece of work that could well see us all arguing about whether or not a zombie movie qualifies as best picture material. The review also noted that the film appears stylistically similar to Children of Men. According to Ain't It Cool News, the film follows Jerry Lane as he travels the post-war world and interviews survivors of the zombie war, who are starting to wonder if survival is a victory of any kind. One of the first interviews is with Dr. Sai, the first to encounter the zombies. Straczynski had hoped that the film would begin production by the start of 2009. Forster, however, told IGN on March 6th, 2009, that the script was still in development and that he was not sure if World War Z would be his next film. On March 20th, 2009, rumours surfaced that production offices were set up and the film was in early pre-production. In June, Mark Forster told an interview uh, that the film would be delayed, stating that the film's script still needed a lot of development and is still far from realisation. And the last bit, in July 2009, Brooks revealed to Fangoria that the script is currently being rewritten by Matthew Michael Carnahan, brother of Joe Carnahan, who directed Narc and the A-Team. Brooks believes this shows the producer's confidence in this project because of the amount of money that was being invested in it. Paramount Pictures announced at the 2010 Comic Con that Forster is set as director and Brad Pitt has been confirmed to play the lead role. So, I mean, Max Brooks doesn't look like Brad Pitt, but hell, I'll take Brad Pitt as the interviewer any day. I think he'd do a really good job as that. Fantastic. Sort of omnipresent, but almost in the background. If they do this right, and I mean properly right, if they give this the credence that it deserves, this excites me more than The Hobbit. And people who know how much I love Lord of the Rings will know what a huge statement that is from me. Yeah. Please make this film, and please make the film that I've got inside my head. But you'll have to go in there to get out, because I can't put that across to you in words <laughs> I can picture it but fetch a lobo <laughs> <laughs> I think that pretty much wraps up World War Z we've gone on for a way too long on this one but I think it, it's warranted I'm not sure if you guys have, can understand that if we like it or not but we do you can pick this book up for what five quid five seven quid, quid. five quid yeah, on will, five pounds twenty four on Amazon you will not regret it. I honestly do suggest you read the book and then get the audiobook. I mean, you've heard the audiobook now. You know what quality it is. It can only get better. So, yes. Okay. That will be all from us this week. Next week, we are going back to films. We have a brilliant trilogy in store for you with a very special guest. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Neil Taylor. And I continue to be Matt Ramsey. Happy trails to you all. to see children again. 
I mean those who were born after the war. Real children who know nothing but a world that includes the living dead. They know not to play near still water, not to go out alone or after dark in the spring or summer. They don't know to be afraid, and that is the greatest gift, the only gift we can leave to them. Sometimes I think of that old woman at Nu Da Chang, what she lived through, that seemingly unending upheaval that defined her generation. Now that's me, an old man who's seen his country torn to shreds many times over. And yet, every time we've managed to pull ourselves together to rebuild and renew our nation. And so we will again. I don't really believe in an afterlife, the old revolutionary to the end. But if there is, I can imagine my old comrade Gu laughing down at me when I say, with all honesty, that everything's going to be all right. <laughs>